Uh, good afternoon, uh, Mr. Sionel Jose. It's such a privilege to be able to uh, speak with you again. Uh, we met in 2014 in what was really an exhilarating uh, short one hour with you. Uh, but uh, uh, thank you for accepting the invitation of the Georgetown Literary Festival uh, to uh, basically interrogate or interview uh, a living legend. Um, we thought we would uh, reflect on your on your life and uh, career as one of the Philippines literature's um, uh, greatest figures. Uh, and I thought uh, uh, I could start at a place that um, you have spoken about very frequently, uh, that is about the notion of memory uh, and collective memory in particular. Uh, you have often asserted that the writer is the keeper of memory. Uh, what I'd like to ask is, what today is the nature of collective memory, sir? And how do you feel it has changed? Well, so much, so much depends really on the people and how they regard their history. And some of them look at history as a kind of continuum mm -hmm. that they live in. But there are also those who don't give a hoot at all. And this is a shame because if they don't know their history, then they also don't know themselves. Mm -hmm. As I said before, writers are the keepers of memory. And without that memory, there is no nation. Yes. Therefore, it is very important that the writers may be writing fiction or journalism or whatever, they must, in a sense, always be true to themselves, true to the facts as they are. Mm -hmm. Although sometimes they tend to embellish history so that their people will appear noble and heroic. I'd like a literature that in a sense, presents not only the smiles of people, but also their hungers and their mm -hmm. agonies. Right now, yes. at this moment, a lot of my countrymen are very angry yes. because we have a bad government. Mm -hmm. But we know that our leaders will pass, and it is perhaps what will survive them all are the things that our, our writers write about them. Mm -hmm. That That is the very nature of literature itself, as not only as memory, but as a record of the passing of regimes and of peoples, mm -hmm. and most important, the building of nations. Your encapsulation of literature is a is is a very um, a moving one. Uh, today, some would say it's a it's it's a little romantic. I wanted to pick up on your idea of uh, the anger of the younger generation of writers, uh, and it seems that so much of writing today is shaped really by conflicts of identity and driven by the exigencies of cause and advocacy. Uh, it's, it's in a world where language is delivered in 280 characters. 
now tell me as a language as a novelist um can you tell me about language uh, tell me about how it language is operating today uh, from your uh, view well the writer has always to deal with language as best as he can because it's the very tool mm-hmm. that he is using and it's also in a sense uh, expresses this the this the soul of a people but filipinos have a very great problem with language because like myself when i write in english it's not my mother tongue it's something that i have learned mm-hmm. but it has become a part of me and uh, what i have done mm-hmm. is to quote to filipinize english to reflect a little i mean just to go back uh, to your own uh, own life and uh, uh, and writing life uh, you began your literary vocation quite compelled by jose rizal yeah uh, rizal is of, is received in the philippines almost as a as a kind of bequest uh, could you tell me a little bit about how his presence descends today in the philippines and uh, uh, what was that presence when you and your contemporaries began the figure of jose rizal we learned about Rizal at a very young age mm-hmm. because every town has its monument yes. and very much you know in our social life when we when we when we celebrate national heroes day mm-hmm. Rizal day you know so uh, he's almost a mythical figure mm-hmm. but being such i i regret to say that uh, he isn't he isn't much of an influence in our literature mm. maybe in our politics maybe in our regards to our country but there is very little in our literature that concerns him mm-hmm. for me however he is my basic inspiration as a writer mm-hmm. and in a sense my conception of the rosalis saga started yes. with him mm-hmm. because he also uh, wrote two novels mm-hmm. there was a third novel that he wrote but he was not able to finish it mm-hmm. and and um, in in the sense uh as i said you know he is very important to me mm-hmm. as a writer as an inspiration uh and even as as a personal model in my life although mm-hmm. of course of course i can never approximate what this man had done mm-hmm. the other writer i know who, who was very much influenced by him was nikokin Mm-hmm. Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, there are just the two of us who, who were, in a sense, influenced by him. Mm-hmm. You, you, you were talking about the. You, you touched on on how Rizal was an inspiration for the Rosales saga. Uh, the, the, the saga is is a work of literature I know very well. Uh, and the last time we spoke, we, we we talked about possibly translating it into Malay, which is something I'm still intending to sit down and do. 
Um, but the, the Rosales saga is apical, of course, in proportions. Uh, and I was curious, did you set out when you first started writing for on uh, that it would be so expansive? I mean, even in later works like Via Hero, the characters reappear. Yeah. Um, now, my question is really about what is required in an apical imagination, uh, uh, sir? Well, I think that first and, and foremost, you know, yes. is a kind of rootedness in your country, in its history, a, a, a profound knowledge of mm. the problems of your country, its nationhood, why it is decaying or why, and for mm. us, uh, why the Philippines has decayed rather than why it hasn't, or yes, or uh, why it hasn't developed as much as as the other countries in the region. Keep in mind, I well, I don't know you are that old, but in the 50s and the 60s, mm. we were the richest countries, country in Southeast Asia next only yes. to Japan. So, in a sense, all many of these problems were already dealt with by Rizal in his novels and his generation, you know, because uh, the, the Philippines is the first Asian country to to revolt against Western mm. imperialism. And many of these leaders, Rizal among them, were very much influenced by the Enlightenment and uh, events in Europe like the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Many of the Filipinos, the generation of Rizal, were educated in the best European tradition, mm -hmm. far more educated than many of the Americans who came to this country. They, they were educated in philosophy, in the sciences, you know, in history. Rizal spoke about eight languages. Mm -hmm. Greek and Latin were taught in the universities. Mm -hmm. And that's why if you read Rizal very well, you, you can see um, traces of, of Greek and, and Roman civilization mm -hmm. in his writing. Yeah. And... Yes, and of yourself, I mean, when you set out with the Rosales saga, um, you know, did what does it require to write something as expansive as that, uh, and really epical? In, in you know, what what kind of resources, what kind of stamina is required to be able to work something uh, that expansive? To be frank with you, and, and of course, I, I've always tried to be frank. You know, <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that I was writing. You know, a saga when I started this, I just thought mm -hmm. that, that, that I, I would like to, uh, expose as much as I can of what was life in my, in the Philippines, particularly mm -hmm. mine, my family, you know. It just yeah. grew, but, but it already had a, a kind of form, you know, because I've been reading, uh, at that time, in, in uh, Steinbeck, you know, and Faulkner, who wrote uh, similar kind of novels, 
Mm. And because I read Don Quixote when I was in grade school and Rizal also at the same time when I was in grade school. So I I had that kind of uh, background and and uh, and uh, I I knew that I had to tell a story you know, mm. that moved forward like Don Quixote, you know. It, 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 it was serially written and that mm. is how the saga also was written. Uh, I, I wrote the chapters and then first and then put them together. And um, I, I already had the storyline. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's only the concluding novel in the, in the saga, Mass, which was an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it, the saga ends with uh, as as planned with the pretenders, which is very bleak. Incidentally, the the last novel in the as I intended it mm-hmm. uh, was was also the first the, that was finished. I see. Yeah, and uh, the first novel in the saga, on mm-hmm. uh, which deals with the twilight of the Spanish regime and the coming of the Americans was the last right. novel that was written because right. it required so much so much uh, research you know mm-hmm. um, the pretenders ends very bleakly uh, with the suicide of the main character yes. but don't take that suicide literally because it's also uh, symbolic of the passing of the generation and of the nation. Because, like I said, I was very pessimistic about my country. And then Marcos declared martial law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I saw all these young people you know, rebelling against him, fighting him, losing mm-hmm. their lives, you know, and said, mm-hmm. my God, our country has hope after all. And I decided to write in a world dedicated to these young people yes. you know, who were fighting Marcos and risking their lives and dying. Yes. That's why uh, mass is an afterthought. It's an afterthought. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a very moving. Uh, the Pretenders is my favorite book of the, of the saga. It's, so, uh, it's, it's bleak, yes, but it's so movingly uh, uh, wrought, uh, oh. I must say. Um, Thank you for liking it. <laughs> I like it very much, sir. Um, uh, you began your working life as a journalist. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you've, yes. And you have continued to write your weekly columns, yeah? Um, yes, yes, I do. Yes. Uh, uh, recently, a collection of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's journalism uh, was published in English. Uh, and just to... Oh, I didn't know in, that. Yes, uh, called The Scandal of the Century. Uh, and, and, and he asserts there, or he asserted posthumously, uh, that novels were an aside and journalism was always his truest calling. Uh, what, what, what is the experience like for you, straddling uh, journalism uh, and the novel? Actually, I'd like to think that by being a journalist helped me uh, very much as a novelist, you know. But, but I'd like to think that I am basically a novelist more mm-hmm. than a journalist. Jo- yeah. Journalism 
uh, I read somewhere, you know, uh-huh. is history in a hurry, and literature is history that is lived. Both are important, and for the novelist and the writer, it's also important that he's true to himself. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're writing fiction and you are beholden to no one except yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure, it's imagination, but but uh, e- even so, one must be honest with oneself. You know, that old Shakespeare line, to thine own self be true, you know. Yes. Mm. yes. Um, uh, why do you keep with, why do you keep up with your, your, your regular column? It takes a lot of stamina. Oh, not, not really. It's, it just ha- it's just once a week, you know. <laughs> I have a journal and uh, that's more, uh, how would I call it? That's more demanding in the sense, not that yeah. I'm forced to do it, but but uh, I write every day on this. I have two, one at home and one in the office, in the office. and I write everything in these journals. Right. Um, it's a kind of exercise, you know. Every writer should keep a journal. Um, yes. And and what is written in that journal? Need that be published, you know, because it's like I said, it's a kind of exercise, like like the pianist or the ballet dancer mm-hmm. before they go on stage, you know, they warm up. It's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. But but writing after the time, you no, know, it's not just a, a a a profession or even a vocation. Mm. It becomes life itself, you know. I mm. I cannot think of myself not writing at all. Mm. Um, I think that 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 uh, even with the detail of this life that's left, I'll spend it writing. My mm. my my only regret even now is that. My memory is failing. One of my writer, one of my daughters, Jet, is an editor, and mm-hmm. yeah, and and uh, I, I I tell her that she must tell me when I stop writing because mm-hmm. I don't know uh, if, for instance, if I I suffer if I suffer from old age dementia or Alzheimer's, I will not know it. And somebody's got to tell me so that I will stop writing and I will stop even uh, social climbing and uh, appearing in public because because then I'll be an embarrassment to my family and, of course, to myself. But your journalism still... Uh, creates a lot of discussion and there's still quite a lot of contention oh, yes, around yes. it, yeah? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> but uh, especially uh, writing and posting things in Facebook. You see, yes. when you write uh, a, a novel, you don't know the immediate response of people. 
know, unless there are immediate book reviews or you have people who read you constantly. But yes. uh, my my journalism, when it is um, uh, when it comes out in Facebook, I immediately get response. You know, yes, and, and a lot of those responses are sometimes very cruel and violent you know and yes uh, and it it takes a lot of self-confidence which in this age i already have and yet i just brush them yes. off like duck you know uh brushes yes. of water on his feathers do, do you see yourself is is there a great generational quarrel in the philippines at the moment oh there's there has always been, you know, oh, and yeah. those of us, the older generation, always feel that we have had it better in our time, and yeah. that that uh, uh, this this generation gap is is sometimes uh, a major problem because it is sometimes not bridged at all. Mm-hmm. So, so I try to read as much as I can what what the young writers are writing. Mm-hmm. And I try to get to know as may, as much as I can the mm-hmm. young people, you know, and and show a great interest in in the things that interest them, you know. Yeah. And sometimes I'm shocked at some of their comments, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 what you call the generation gap, like people asking me, were the Japanese really all that bad during the war? You know, yeah. so I, I, I take for granted that everybody knows this, you know, so mm. sometimes uh, the past needs to be explained again mm. and again and again. Mm. And that is one of the things that all the writers do. Yes. But then sometimes we are accused of revisionism, but that is not true. That is not true. We are just writing what it was, about what it was, and uh, people who disagree with what we say, they call us revisionists, you know. Mm -hmm. But we we live in that particular time mm. and we who live in that particular time witness its agonies as well as its trivialities mm. are the ultimate judges of that time. Yes. Not those who come way, way generations ahead of us who yes. read about it only in the newspapers on history books. Yes. It's us who are the ultimate judges. All others, you know, mm. are free to judge, to make judgment, but it is us who lived in those times who are the ultimate judges. And again, again, this is where writing is very important. And this is where writing is also very, very important when the writer himself is very honored. Truth, truth, you know, uh, it has many facets. Yes. But there is, like I said, there is only 
one objective truth. Mm. A woman raped, you know, mm. a man murdered, mm. a people deceived, a nation mm. plundered. These this are the truths that the honest writer will, will write about. Um, generational quarrels are, are quite important, I think, but we in Malaysia, we elected a 93-year-old as Prime Minister again, so we regard the 90s as a, as a quite an acceptable, youthful age, I think, here in Malaysia. Um, oh, uh, but you resigned. Know, sorry? Mahathir resigned, didn't he? Yes, Mahathir resigned, but you know, we did elect him when he was 93. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so for us, uh, the 90s are kind of middle age, uh, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, middle age, that's old age. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, no, this is one question that I think uh, uh, a person like you is in a perfect position to answer because to talk about Philippine writing is a, is a, is a very big thing. Uh, but Philippine writing and the idea of the nation uh, lies at the foundation of modern Philippine literature, yeah? Uh, yet the literature of regions and provinces of the various languages of the Philippines uh, has been an imaginative challenge. Uh, can you describe what this experience has been for you, the national and the provincial, those tensions? Actually, th- th- there should be no distinction because mm. many of the writers come from the pra- mainstream literature in the Philippines is English, of course, but but... Mm. But but remember that not all the writers in English come from one place. You know they come from yes. all over the country. You know, and and uh, there's a lot of interest in trying to promote our minor languages you know, mm-hmm. like uh, Sambal and Kapampangan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Pangasinan, you know, mm. um, these are very minor languages, and they will most probably die because languages die. But the yeah. major languages like Tagalog, Cebuano, and Ilocano, no, they were very yes. vibrant literature, which yes. could be translated into English or Tagalog. So that we, we will know more about our regional literatures that mm. today are, are confined only to the regions where they come from. Mm. Mm. And uh, this, this, this so is a question... Just, uh, I was just going to, to continue that some, yes, of our, yeah, some of our regional literatures like Sinai Hamada, who wrote of the Cordilleras, and Ibrahim Jubaira, who wrote of the Taosugs of Sulu. Uh, yeah. They, they haven't been replaced, you know. So this yes. is one of the things that I'd like to see. Uh, they were writing in English, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were writing in English. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, I, uh, this is just an aside, since we're talking about you know minor minor languages and uh, other major provincial languages and English. Uh, you know, the Philippines has a great uh, oral tradition or uh, oral oh, literature. Yeah, of course, of course. Good. Yeah. Uh, how how important is that uh, today? Um, 
How important is understanding and getting a sense of those traditions important for contemporary Philippine writing? Well, this is it. You know, I, as a matter of fact, I just finished an article on this subject. Yes. Because, you know, there, there are great advances in science, but there is so little, uh, how would I say, new developments in the mm. humanities, you know, especially mm. in literature. So, mm. There are so many aspects of our so-called quote indigenous culture, you know, mm. that that can be not resurrected, you know, but but that can be the subject of renewal, you know. Mm. But again, again, it requires a kind of rootedness of our mm. writers in their own culture and the recognition of the importance of these indigenous aspects of our culture. Because, mm. after all, you know, that's where our art begins, folk art, yes. you know. Uh, yes. It's the job of the writer, the artist, to ennoble it, you know, mm. to raise it to a higher level. Mm. You know. And that is what I hope that many of our uh, young writers will will try to do to, for instance, our folk epics in our own languages, how mm. they can be uh, modernized. Our folk dances, the same thing, how they can yes. be modernized too. Yes. Even even the traditional oral poetry that we used to have, um, yeah. it can be made into rap. You know, and that is what imaginative young poets are do doing. Uh, yeah. Rap is very popular in the Philippines, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They are very good rap groups too in the Philippines. Yeah. I follow them quite often. <laughs> oh, you do? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yes. Uh, the uh, Talking about these various branches of the Philippine literary experience, uh, we, we've talked about the, the, the Filipino novel, uh, we've talked about uh, uh, oral traditions now. Uh, but the other great uh, uh, Philippine experience has been that of the Philippine diaspora, yeah? Oh, uh, yeah. yes. Yes, people like Carlos Bolasan, uh, Jose Garcia Villa, uh, many others today working principally from the United States. Uh, what would you say are the contradictions uh, between the Philippine writer in the Philippines and the Philippine writer in, so the, uh, in, in inverted commas, you know, in, in exile or, or, or living elsewhere? I, uh, frankly, I don't make a distinction. They're all or Philippine literature. And the diaspora is a continuing phenomenon. And I've written about it, and so many other writers have done so. Mm -hmm. It's not so much a problem of literature as such. It is a problem of identity for so mm -hmm. many of these people in the diaspora themselves, because I've lectured in the United States, and there are uh, Americans of Philippine ancestry mm -hmm. yeah, who, who want to know more about the mother country, because mm. they have problems of identity. Mm. And I said, uh, they're they're Americans. They they better they they better understand 
that, you know, because they're not Filipinos anymore. But, yes. but that problem of identity, however, is very real with many Filipinos, primarily because, well, I don't want to say colonialism, but so many of us mm. regard America as our second country. Yes. And almost every Filipino wants to go and live in the United States. And yes. this is not altogether very good for our own uh, development. It's one of those things that we have to struggle against, you know, the, the colonization that we underwent and the strong hangover of colonialism mm. in our lives. When Filipino writers, many of us, you know, who write, do not consider themselves as having made it until they mm. are published in the United States. In the United States, yeah. Yeah, that, that was an attitude that I also had in the beginning. Mm. And thank God, you know, I got out of that attitude early enough because many Filipinos should ask themselves at the start of their writing career, for whom am I writing? Mm. For, that's very important. Um, the, the next part I want to talk to you about is about the writer in, in politics. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yes, to use an analogy from one of your most admired novels, yeah, Don Quixote de la Mancha, uh, you know, the writer and politics is like driving a lance into a windmill. Uh, yet it has been a preoccupation with writers in the Philippines. Uh, can you explain what the writer's relationship with politics has been in your context? Well, in the first place, no, almost all of life is political, you know. Yes. And writing is itself a political act, you know. If, if, I mean, mm -hmm. if you want to look at it closely. But I never forgot what was his name, this German philosopher. Uh, Heidegger? No, no Nietzsche. Heidegger Nietzsche, yeah. Name, yeah when he said that convictions are prisons. So it's important mm -hmm. for us to have convictions, but not to be imprisoned by them. So it's always good to have an open mind, you know, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. about politics. Oh, right now, right now, Duterte has our president. Yes. Has like, like very much like Trump, divided the country, you know. Yes. And that's not good, you know. A good leader mm. should not divide his country. He should unite his people. You know? yes. I mean, if he was head of a small corporation where he, he, he must divide and rule, you know, divide it in para. Oh, yeah. That is perhaps permissible. Yeah. And in the long run, it's the leader who is actually selfless, who doesn't mind too much his own agendas or his own personal feelings or his family yeah. to interfere with what he considers the common good. It is only yeah. then, you know, that he becomes not a politician but a leader of his people. Hmm. Otherwise, you know, he is just another politician. And yes. it's very Difficult sometimes to make that leap, you know, from politician to statesman. Mm. Because I think that most of us are so egoistic, you know, that we cannot transcend the self. Yes. Uh, so that uh, I, that is 
what I've always tried to avoid as a writer, you know, mm. to avoid too much ego and too much yes. self-righteousness. Yes, and what, what do you think the writer brings into the pol- political experience? What do you think the, the writer brings into that world? You know, I've known several of our leaders very, very well, you know. And knowing them, I I tried, I've also tried to influence them in a way as best as I can. I I don't think I have succeeded, but <laughs> I, I, I tried. And that's why I said that writing is whether the writer intends to or not, in the sense becomes very political, especially mm. if he is what I call engaged mm. or he considers himself a, a very active uh, participant in his society. You know. uh, could I ask, uh, in, uh, as an aside, yeah. um, is the weight of the Marcos years, does it still weigh heavily on the Philippine imagination? Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, he jailed some writers. He, mm-hmm. he made them suffer. Some of them I know personally. And you know that all dictum about suffering, making people better. So mm-hmm. I had hope that that when Marcos uh, left, that these writers would therefore be writing better. <laughs> that <laughs> it didn't happen that way. Ah, <laughs> mm. oh, yes. Uh, you you know, in a sense, did something. Mm. First, he unified the Filipinos well enough for them to see to it that he gets kicked out. That was at Edsa 1. Second, he drew a dividing line uh, among us writers, those who kowtowed to him and those who opposed him. So it's so easy now for me to recognize the writers who who opposed him and those who didn't to, mm. to recognize who were the brave ones and who were the cowards, who were mm. the opportunists and who were the, the writers of integrity. That is what Marcos also did, you know. Yeah. Yes. I, I, again, I, I, I cannot say that in making these distinctions, again, I'm self-righteous, you know, mm. because... Mm-hmm. I know that many of these writers, some of them would have nothing if they didn't tout out to Marcos. Mm. That's why Mar- Marcos affected a lot of people, but he also helped a lot of people. He touched many lives. Mm. He, he murdered a lot, but he also brought out of poverty, brought up from poverty a lot of writers. Because in this country, no, no writer is rich. Absolutely yes. no writer is rich. So it has been a very complicated and complex experience, yes? Oh, sure, of course, yeah. Um, I, uh, I've just got two more questions, uh, um, uh, sir. Uh, and one, one of them I can't, uh, I, I can't conclude without asking you about Solidarity, the journal. Uh, my father was among those who contributed to it in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, not, yes. not, not only him, also your Prime Minister, Mahathir. Mahathir, yes, yes, yeah. absolutely, yes. Uh, and then, of course, there's uh, the legendary uh, Solidaridad, uh, the bookshop in uh, Pedro Faure. 
um, where, you know, among other things, uh, great roundtables were held. People like Nino Aquino used to attend them and uh, talk about the destiny of the, of, of the Philippines. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the genesis of this, how, how it all came about? Which one? The uh, both, the, the bookshop and the journal, journal on the bookshop. Uh, the, the bookshop is the old house of my uh, wife's family. This district in Ermita was yes. the richest district in the Philippines before the war because this is where the rich Filipinos live, Ermita, Malati area. In February mm-hmm. 1945, this place was destroyed uh, by the Japanese and thousands of people were massacred here. Mm-hmm. In, and the house, original house of my in-laws was burned. So this bookshop is new. Uh, when I returned from Sri Lanka in 1964-65, mm. I was there for two years. Mm. I had savings and some assistance from the uh, International Association for Cultural Freedom mm-hmm. uh, to published a magazine that is Solidarity. Yes. And with the money, I was I was looking for for an office, you know, because it, it, I need, I needed one only for the publishing house and the journal. Yeah. And my father-in-law said, "Why don't you look at that house in mm-hmm. in Ermita in?" And I looked at it, and it was too big. All I needed mm-hmm. was a room, and that was when my wife said, "Let's make it into a bookshop." And that's that all there was to it. This house, this mm-hmm. bookshop, is haunted. Yes. Do you believe in ghosts? Yeah, I believe very much in ghosts. <laughs> because this house was burned, you know. Yeah, it's haunted. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, uh, the journal Solidarity. Um, what, what, when you first started it, what did you hope it would be? Oh, there's a story behind it because you see, after the war, mm-hmm. I become I became very much interested uh, in history in our region, in Japan, of course. Mm-hmm. And how come that we knew so little? almost nothing about Thailand mm. or Indonesia mm. or Burma. Mm. And so when I started working with the old Manila Times, one of the first things that I did was travel all over the country and all over Southeast Asia. Mm. I first visited Malaysia in the 1950s, you know, and Kuala Lumpur was a big kampong surrounded by rubber <laughs> plantations. Yeah. Yes. Bangkok was a city with many canals. And Singapore was a, a sleepy port, you know, yeah. with old buildings like the one yes. we have in Binondo. These places are now unrecognizable from what I saw of them in the 1950s, the great development and the contacts that have developed in the ASEAN region. 
And I hope that these contacts will grow, hmm. you know, so that there will be more sense of neighborliness among hmm. us. Because in the end, in the end, we have to survive not just as nations, but as regional nations, you know, so that mm-hmm. will not be easy prey to whoever becomes powerful enough mm. to uh, dream of uh, getting this region as part of its hegemony. Yes. Um, I, this is the uh, concluding question. Go ahead. Um, Yes. I met you last in 2014. It was an exhilarating and inspiring meeting. Thank you so much. And I, I, as I was leaving, I wished you well. And you replied um, uh, uh, very uh, gustfully uh, and said that I will be here till I see the revolution I've dreamt happen right outside this window. Uh, you have many times reiterated that the struggle of the Philippines uh, has been that of establishing social justice and a moral order. Uh, how do you feel in all your years now that that revolution has been evolving? I have I will have a very long reply to that one. <laughs> we have time, sir. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was very optimistic when our president took over Duterte. Yes. Because first and foremost, he said he will destroy the Filipino oligarchy. That's one. Then he also said that he will watch carefully. He was critical of the Catholic Church, you know, and of the media itself. And I was yes. very glad that he uh, said these things, but he didn't follow through, you know. So mm. the oligarchy has changed, you know. It's no longer composed of Spanish mestizos and Filipinos. Mm. Now mm. it is composed of Chinese Filipinos with very mm. few, uh, with the Spanish mestizos already in the minority. Mm. But it is still the same oligarchy in the sense that it is, has always been exploitative of mm. this country and its resources. Mm. Remember that especially the Chinese oligarchs, they came here with nothing, absolutely nothing. Mm. Today they are billionaires. You know, you can anywhere else you do not become a billionaire without exploiting the people as they mm. do here in this country. And that revolution that I've been waiting for mm. is just still a dream. Mm. And I may leave this country without seeing it happen. But I can see changes slowly happening, you know. And I hope that these changes continue and that the modernization of this country might be brought about not so much by a proletarian revolution, Mm -hmm. but by a modernizing elite Mm -hmm. that has happened in Singapore, in a sense also in Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia, mm. and in Taiwan, and in, in Korea, and most of all in Japan, you know. Mm. 
Hmm. Because the revolutions here, like I said, were not brought about by revolutionary proletariat. They were brought hmm. about by middle class businessmen, professionals, technocrats, backed by very strong duly elected governments. Sometimes hmm. uh, governments that are almost dictatorial, hmm. but which are, in a sense, modernizing. Mr. Francisco Nel Jose, it's been a great privilege uh, speaking to you, sir. Uh, I thank you very much, Manong, and uh, uh, I, I continue to pray that you will be as active and engaging uh, for the next 150 years at least. <laughs> <laughs> and I look forward very much uh, to seeing you and and plan to settle down after this wonderful conversation and really beginning that uh, translation work of your marvelous uh, saga. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>